Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is the Crime Stoppers Victoria podcast. I'm your host, Sarita Visuwasam. Thanks for joining us today. This episode is the fifth and final part of our series on elder abuse. After hearing from members of Seniors Rights Victoria, Victoria Police and the Office of the Public Advocate, this episode looks at addressing elder abuse from a legal perspective. Our guest today is Cathy Wilson of Cathy Wilson Legal and the Law Institute of Victoria. Cathy will share her extensive knowledge on the subject and provide insight into how to address elder abuse in a legal sense. Before we get started, to keep up to date with the Crime Stoppers Victoria podcast, please hit the follow or subscribe button on your podcast player. Hope you enjoy the discussion. It's great for you to join us today on the Crime Stoppers Victoria podcast, Cathy. Thanks for being a part of it today. I'm delighted. It's such an important piece of work for the community and have been great steps taken in the last couple of years. So uh, I'm pleased to see anything that advances and uh, draws attention to this issue. Well, we certainly appreciate you being a part of the discussion and I'm sure our listeners will benefit greatly from the expertise that you'll impart on us today. So before we get started, it would be great to learn a bit about your role in law and also in particular with elder law. Um, yes, thank you. I, I, I Technically, I'm a Law Institute accredited specialist in wills and estates, and that includes elder law and elder abuse. Um, I've, I'm very passionate about this area of law. I've worked in it um, for over 20 years. My firm works solely in um, this area of practice. Um, and uh, sometimes uh, we are paid, sometimes we work pro bono, um, but it's such an important area of law. It's it's important for people to have a voice and to have somebody represent them. Certainly it is important for members of the community to have that representation. In terms of elder law, how would you define it in the legal sense? Yes, we, we do have a technical legal definition of elder abuse and it, it's regarded as any act that causes harm to an older person and is carried out by someone they know and trust. It includes financial abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse, social abuse or sexual abuse and sometimes neglect. It occurs in all cultures and all backgrounds. That's quite a 
detailed definition and the different elements uh, or, or types of elder abuse are certainly eye-opening. In terms of the realm you work in, what would you say would be the more predominant types of uh, elder abuse that you encounter? Yes, that's a good question. Uh, a lot of what we encounter is financial abuse uh, and social abuse, uh, emotional abuse, uh, less often physical or sexual abuse, um, and uh, less often neglect. Um, uh, but uh, sometimes uh, they're, they're married. There, there might be both financial abuse and social abuse, for example. Um, and by financial abuse, um, I mean uh, taking a person's money and using it without their consent, without their informed consent. It might be, for example, misusing an ATM credit card, um, taking their money or property or getting them to sign it over. It might be forcing or forging a, a vulnerable person's signature or persuading them to go to the bank and give you some money to change their will or their power of attorney. Financial abuse takes so many forms um, and is probably the most prevalent form of abuse that we see uh, amongst the elder members of our community. Well, it's good uh, good to learn that from yourself, Cathy. In terms of our podcast series, the three preceding episodes, uh, certainly financial abuse was a common theme amongst them all, and we certainly went into detail regarding uh, that type of abuse. In relation to being a lawyer and uh, dealing with clients who are suffering financial abuse or other forms of elder abuse, how long would it take for someone to be encountering their form of abuse before they decide to go and visit their lawyer? Well, it can be quite some time um, because people, uh, lawyers often work in a transactional way. Uh, we less so. We tend to stay in touch with our clients on an ongoing basis. But often you go to see a lawyer if you've got a particular problem or a particular need. So a lawyer is not necessarily quickly alerted to it unless a family member or somebody um, who's involved in their affairs knows to contact the lawyer. So sometimes I've been contacted by somebody who says, oh, you know, so-and-so told me that you're her lawyer. Um, uh, I've just noticed these things, you know, what should I do? I'm not a member of the family, um, but I've, I've witnessed these things. You know, what can I do to help them? Um, so uh, and sometimes it'll be that the abuse will become apparent when uh, they're brought in by the perpetrator um, and asked to change their documents. And that is an increasingly common scenario. Um, but for, if people are, are wanting to financially exploit an older person, sometimes the first thing they'll do is get a power of attorney from them um, so that they can go to the bank and transact things on their behalf. On other occasions, they don't because um, it's easier to trace if they use a financial power of attorney. Um, more likely, uh, sometimes they'll take them to an ATM or take them into the bank or they'll become a signatory to their account so that it's not actually um, the offence of um, misusing a power of attorney. It's quite fascinating that uh, someone would go to the effort of uh, getting that document, the power of attorney, and then using it to basically take advantage of that person. 
Mm. And uh, sometimes now, of course, um, powers of attorney are available um, in some forms online uh, 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 and from various sources. And of course, then you don't even have the lawyer seeing that. Um, so it's only when a document, it might be, for example, that the attorney uh, sends you a letter with a copy of the power of attorney and says, you know, I want the title to my mother or father's house and I want their will and I want their documents and, and, and you go and check and see that they weren't always the power of attorney. It's a document that's been created recently. Um, so we're often alerted by that sort of scenario, particularly if there's a shaky signature or if it's a client we've known for a long time and we know that they wouldn't have selected that person as their attorney or there's a history of having selected other people and there's a sudden change to that. Um, so we're often alerted in those ways um, and and that's important one of the things that we will do then is reach out to the person directly um, and uh, at a time when we know we can get them on their own on some occasions I've been to visit them uh, on other occasions I've got another family member to go and speak to them and and come back to me um, on occasion I've just it's been you know clearly um, a, a document that's been obtained when a person's lost capacity or lost decision-making capacity for financial or personal matters. Um, and so we might have to contact the police or the Office of the Public Advocate or another step that lawyers often take is to uh, um, uh, ask VCAT to um, schedule a hearing. And, and that can be done. Any, any interested person can make an application to VCAT if you've got concerns about somebody's capacity for decision-making or you've got concerns about a power of attorney that's been drawn up that doesn't seem to be valid. Certainly helpful that the public can uh, have that avenue in VCAT. As far as the perpetrators are concerned, when a lawyer gets involved and takes steps that are, are trying to help the victim, is that in itself a beneficial um, step for the victim that it seems that there is action being taken and that might scare them off a bit? Yes, it does. It does tend to make the uh, uh, attorney be much more careful about what they do. Um, and certainly, uh, you know, where I've had situations that I've been concerned about, um, I've made it very clear to the person who's appointed as attorney that, um, you know, if they want to rely on that document, they're, they're going to face an application at VCAT um, or uh, will be reporting it to the police. The thing about um, the elderly, uh, elderly person who's being abused or exploited is that they are often very vulnerable. They're uh, sometimes living with the person um, uh, and um, they fear for reprisal if they say anything. Um, sometimes they're embarrassed about the situation. They don't want to talk about it openly, but they will talk to their lawyer about it or to a doctor. So sometimes I will say to a client, you know, um, if, you're, if you're worried or I want to get a message across, I'll suggest to them that the next time they go to see their doctor that they have a discussion with the doctor. And the doctors are very good at dealing with these issues. They're very... Um, they're, proactive in being alert to what's going on. If somebody's been bringing a person in um, for, and uh, taking them in for medical appointments for a long time and then suddenly somebody else is there taking them in, you know, they're alerted to those sorts of things. Um, so, uh, and that sometimes is a less confronting way 
for um, the elderly person to deal with it. They're not so worried about authorities getting involved or the police necessarily getting involved. Um, and there's often a sense of relief. They've mm. known it's been going on. They've known they've been, been um, living in fear and trepidation. And now, uh, you know, it's, it's a weight off their chest that somebody's dealing with it. Of course, as lawyers, we need to be careful to support them um, and make them feel comfortable in that way and encourage them to speak out. But we're also mindful of the impact, uh, the potential impact for them if, if we just let them go home to the abuser. So mm -hmm. sometimes we'll help them with strategies. Usually we'll put them in touch with support services to help them. Um, uh, um, as I say, less, uh, sometimes uh, sometimes Crime Stoppers. Crime Stoppers is a great place to go with, uh, with these sorts of complaints because um, if the perpetrator of the abuse is suspicious of somebody, they'll block their contact um, and... Um, uh, they sometimes can be just as violent towards others. Um, so if if they become aware that um, somebody, a neighbour, has made a complaint or gone to the police, um, the, the neighbour can be fearful as well. So uh, Crime Stoppers has that advantage of being able to make an anonymous report that you know, uh, and we know with confidence in the community that Crime Stoppers will act on these reports and they will protect you as far as they possibly can um, uh, when, when you notify them of a problem like that. Mm, that's great you mentioned Crime Stoppers and uh, certainly yeah, we encourage uh, members of the community to uh, report crime and you do have the option of doing so anonymously. With the avenues that you've discussed and, and the reasons with all the strategies rather that you can provide to help um, the victims. I like how you mentioned the the doctor, for instance, that a, a trusted person that, that they might see can pick up on these uh, red flags uh, that might be occurring within the household. So in terms of what steps a person should consider uh, if they feel they are being abused, whether it be at home or by their care or in an aged care facility, what are the um, first steps that you could suggest uh, to sort of take action without perhaps going to the extent of visiting a lawyer? Um, yes, there are some steps they can take. Uh, they've got to be ready and prepared to take them. But I often say that a good place to start is to speak to somebody they trust, um, whoever they trust most away from the perpetrator, somebody that they can trust who will listen to their complaint, listen to their concerns uh, and guide them through it. Now, that might involve um, referrals to other services or contacting the police. In other circumstances, the um, the uh, the elderly person might say, well, look, I actually don't want to pick somebody who's going to refer them for cultural reasons or family reasons. They may be fearful of outside authorities. And so it, when an older person is concerned for their well-being, sometimes they're better to select a person who can help them with strategies to cope with the situation. Um, uh, so somebody with good judgment 
sound judgment who understand they need to support the person. It's not unlike, you know, with um, the battered wives syndrome, as we know, um, you can tell the person what they ought to do, but if they're not ready to do it, um, they don't want you going and saying anything, they'll deny it's ever happened. Um, so it's the same, uh, I think, in these sorts of situations, similarly with sexual abuse, all sorts of abuse. Um, the abused person is often fearful of outside intervention until they're ready for it. So first they need to, they, that they should talk to somebody they trust, have a, a, a starting conversation, recognise what is happening to them is abuse because some people don't recognise it as abuse. Um, social isolation is a type of abuse that is becoming quite prevalent now, particularly when coupled with financial abuse. So um, if the person that you speak to that you trust tries to intervene immediately and speak to the abuser, you might find that they are just more socially isolated. So somebody with sound judgment who can help them and but then know when they need to go and take some more active steps. I mean, if clearly if there's physical abuse, um, uh, you, you can guide people for a while and try and help them get with strategies, but there's a point at which you've, you've got to intervene more than that. Mm, well, that, that's some great advice, uh, Cathy. In terms of the prevalence of elder abuse, in, in that you've noticed being an expert in this uh, area for many, many years. What have you noticed within um, this realm? Is, is that has it changed in recent years? And if there or have different types of elder abuse become more prominent as well? Yes, uh, it has changed. There's no doubt it's on the increase. We don't have a lot of early data to work with. Um, certainly, there's been some data that has shown an increase in reports of elder abuse but of course we know that elder abuse has gone unreported for a long time um, in many cases and sometimes because the person had no confidence in the system no confidence that um, anyone was going to help them uh, so uh, again fearful that the police won't do anything about it um, so the police have been very active working in this area in the last couple of years. Um, they've set up a dedicated forces to, to address it, to understand it, to identify it. And they've become very good at finding ways to intervene in a less confrontational way. So often they'll, um, uh, they'll conduct a welfare check but they won't wear necessarily their uniforms. They might go in everyday clothing and just happen to be in the area or just checking on elderly people. In the past, they would have turned up in a divvy van in, in uniforms. And, you know, sometimes the poor person sits there um, in fear and trepidation that as soon as the police leave, the abuse is going to you know, increase. Um, so I've certainly seen an increase in the reports of elder abuse also increases in the incidence of elder abuse and in different in different ways. Um, some of this comes about because we're living longer. Um, uh, our population um, is, uh, um, the, our life expectancy is much longer than, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. Um, and uh, life expectancy might be because we've got so many ways of dealing with illnesses before that would have been fatal but no longer are. Um, just all those things that help us live longer. Um, but often you become, uh, the older person becomes more and more frail and vulnerable, their 
support groups, their friendship groups, I might have passed on before them, their spouse might have passed on before them. So that is one, one reason I think that we see an incidence of it, and impatience sometimes by uh, family members for their inheritance. You know, mum doesn't need this money anymore, and they rationalise taking money in different ways. You know, mum doesn't need to do all those things. What's mum got to do with it? She'll lose her pension. And this is a type of abuse that I found is quite common to say, uh, to persuade a parent that um, they need to keep their aged care pension. And to do that, they ought to give away, you know, sign away their house or their money um, before they become eligible for a pension. Um, uh, so th that's, uh, there's an increasing incidence of that. I think an increase in private wealth in the community, for example, with superannuation and the like, means that there's more money available that people are looking to get. Um, you know, um, we are a, in many ways, a, there are parts of our society that are much wealthier, have more private wealth than in the past. There are still people that are well below the poverty line, but there are those that have got private wealth. Um, and uh, so, uh, you, you know, you're, you're just a target for um, not just family members, other people that you know and trust as well. They may be neighbours, they may be carers. Um, I've seen abuse perpetrated by all sorts of people um, that are not necessarily family members. Um, in relation to um, personal um, physical abuse, um, similarly, I think with age and vulnerability and isolation, there seems to have been an increase in that. Some of it comes about because um, uh, people have, uh, the perpetrator might have other mental health issues that are either not diagnosed, um, not uh, they're not taking their medications or just because of their own mental health issues, um, they perpetrate abuse um, and violence on people. So um, if there's an increased incidence of that. Um, drugs in the community, uh, you know, ice addicts and the like, um, uh, I've seen uh, quite an increase in the incidence of people that are drug affected um, that are abusing uh, family members as well. So um, in relation to um, another type of abuse, uh, which is um, social exclusion, uh, similarly, um, uh, we find that it is used as a, a secondary way of enabling a person to continue to financially abuse the person. Um, or if they don't want support services coming in, they just cancel them. Um, so there's an increase there where there weren't always so many services available. So they didn't need to implement social ex exclusion strategies because there weren't supports coming into the home. Well, so, uh, such a uh, interesting range of changes in society that you've outlined that have really, um, I guess, fed into uh, ways that or, or, or reasons why um, perpetrators might be uh, doing what they do to um their family members. So as far as the rights that elder citizens have, what legal rights do they have in the event they are suffering abuse? Um, well, if they have capacity, um, it's they've got a lot of rights. They can take out um, apprehended violence orders. There are a, a number of 
um, uh, strategies that they can employ, um, uh, often with the assistance of the police, because they're able to articulate their concerns um, and uh, to give actual evidence of what's happening. Um, some other uh, there are strategies that involve um, uh, they might uh, reach out to uh, another loved trusted person, a family member or the like, or to a support service themselves. Um, uh, uh, of increasing concern is people who have diminished decision-making capacity. And decision-making capacity is a very complex thing. We used to think of it very simply of either you could um, make decisions for yourself or you couldn't. But we know, and particularly with people living longer, um, uh, that um, it can be a very slow and steady decline uh, rather than one day you've got capacity, another day you haven't. So um, if people if people lack the capacity to make those decisions, oh, sorry, returning to while they have capacity, um, another important um, uh, instrument is to have powers of attorney um, appointing people that you know and trust. Um, on the issue of powers of attorney, I always say to, to uh, my clients that they should always appoint, appoint two people because um, abuse is very rarely perpetrated by more than one. It, it, it does happen occasionally, but more often than not, it's one person, one family member or one other person that's become close to the abused person. So if you appoint more than one person, if you've got two people as attorneys, they're keeping an eye on each other. Um, or you can appoint three people with any two to sign is another way to go about it. Um, so they can put in place some uh, powers of attorney for financial matters, powers of attorney for personal matters, and personal means um, lifestyle or guardianship matters. Um, they are where you live, who you live with, restricting access to people. So if they put those documents in place and um, somebody does come along and start to perpetrate abuse, then the attorney can step in and say, no, you can't come here. You know, I am going to exclude you from seeing my mother or my father, whoever it is. Um, and similarly with medical treatment, um, some types of abuse are neglect failure to, um, to um, arrange any medical treatment or medical support services. So if people put in place what we now know is an appointment of medical treatment decision maker in Victoria, used to be called a, a, a power of attorney for medical matters. Um, if you have those documents in place, somebody can take you to the doctor or take you to a service or a, you know, um, a, a approve types of treatment for you when you lose capacity to make those decisions for yourself. So turning then to people who have actually lost capacity and they are so reliant upon others to step up. And uh, the powers of attorney legislation was amended by the Victorian government um, a couple of years ago, effective from 2019 to say that, uh, I beg your pardon, 2015 to say that um, people who have a power of attorney have a positive obligation to do something. Um, to protect the interests of a person uh, that they're appointed as attorney for. So historically, an attorney might say, well, I didn't do anything, not my problem. I don't know anything about it. I, I didn't have to do anything. Yes, I was named as attorney, um, but, um, you know, don't be pointing the finger at me. Now, um, the Victorian government amended the legislation to say that you must take steps to either 
activate the power of attorney um, or to notify VCAT and the Office of the Public Advocate that you don't intend to activate it um, and you effectively want to resign from that role. And that puts a spotlight on the attorney, the requirement to say, well, you know, they turned a blind eye to all the money being taken out of the uh, automatic telling machine or, um, you know, the, uh, the attorney's some family member of the attorney going in and withdrawing money from the bank and so forth or becoming a signatory on the accounts. Um, in relation to banks, of course, they too have stepped up and they're, they're in often a very difficult position, but uh, they have implemented strategies to identify um, a, a, any suspected elder abuse and to report it. financial abuse. You know, people coming into the bank with somebody who's holding their arm and getting them to sign a withdrawal form or giving them authority to sign on their accounts and the like. Yeah, it's yeah. Interesting, uh, you know, about the banks and certainly, well, uh, as far as the the bank staff being proactive enough to identify behaviours in that manner, it would take a bit of courage from on their part as well. Yes, yes, I think um, uh, for for a long time they were uncertain. Uh, bank tellers were a bit uncertain about what to do because somebody turns up with the power of attorney, you might have concerns about it. But um, uh, what's your obligation? They 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 don't they don't know. They can't make an assessment whether the person has capacity or or not. Um, so now I think they are much more interventionalist. Well, that's certainly helpful because the next question I was going to ask Hannah feeds into that where what steps can the community take legally to help protect elder citizens from abuse? Yes, uh, the community plays a, plays a really important role in this area um, because often um, the uh, perpetrator knows that uh, the elderly person is isolated or has limited contact with the public. So the community can help. They are critical to this area. The police can't be on the ground watching everything. The doctors see people when they visit or they might um, call them if they haven't seen them for a while. Similarly, uh, a lawyer might do that or a support service will become concerned if they, if a period of time has gone by and the person hasn't been available or their services have been cancelled. Um, but that can take quite a long time. It has quite a long lead time where um, neighbours and others, they might hear shouting, they might hear, you know, thuds and sounds and things like that. Um, they might be chatting to the person in the garden and the person says, oh, I'm, you know, helping my son to, you know, he's setting up his business and the poor thing, he's, you know, he's, he can't get finance from the bank for this reason or that. So I'm going to give him a mortgage over my house where I've offered to help him out. So neighbours in that way can be an ear to the ground. Um, and uh, they can, as I say, uh, take some steps immediately. One is contacting Crime Stoppers or call the police who can do a welfare check or um, they might just uh, uh, say to the person, do you think that's a good idea? Perhaps before you enter into that sort of transaction, you could talk to your lawyer about it or do the other family members know about that? Um, so they can help um, uh, uh, with um, their strategies can involve um, information giving for the person, um, a support for them, and then uh, reporting the concerns, you know, taking them to the doctor and saying, you know, I can't, I don't know enough about this person, but um, let me help by, you know, taking them to a support person or to, um, 
or to their doctor. Sometimes it, it might be somebody, their parish priest, if they're very close in their church community. And in some cultural groups, um, that would be a way of dealing with it, to go to their minister of religion who would help um, support uh, the people through um, uh, uh, an awareness of the uh, mistreatment and ways around it. It's great to learn the different examples of the types of members within the community who can be supportive of persons who are experiencing this form of abuse because you don't realise all the people you interact with on a, on a weekly basis or, or a monthly basis that might observe your behaviour and how you're feeling, even if you're not detailing it to them, but they might pick up on some uh, trends in behaviour or mm. you know whether you're being quiet or, or reserved. Uh, when you might not be that normally, uh, it, it's good that you have other members within the community who might be able to observe and and really encouraging them to um, take action if required. Yes, I think sometimes the community can be worried that they don't want to be interfering, they don't want to be seen to be nosy parkers or you know, sticky beaks or whatever one might call them in the past. But this is actually an area where it's important that they speak up because they might be the only voice the person has got. Mm. Yeah, well, we certainly talk about more and more nowadays mental health and uh, and really encouragement with mental health is, is to really be that voice and being someone who can really, uh, you know, you can turn to, to to chat if you're feeling not so well and even if you're not, even if the victim's not proactively saying it because they might feel uncomfortable, it's good to have that two-way communication. A- absolutely. Um, keeping the dialogue open, the communication open with the, um, uh, with the elderly person um, is just so important. If that gets shut down, then you really need to, um, if the, the community member needs to take the next active step of, so say, call Crime Stoppers. Um, nothing's lost by doing that. Call the police, they'll do a welfare check. And uh, what that does do, if the police come and visit, um, then the person's on notice, they're being watched. You know, um, and they can have confidence now that they are being watched and steps will be taken. Whereas I think if you, if you went back 20 or 30 years ago, you'd be less confident that the police would do anything about it because they don't know of a crime that's been committed. Mm. It, it's nice to see that progress has been made in, in that regard. As we touched on power of attorneys before and the potential risks that you might encounter in terms of before you've set it up. What legal considerations should be made to ensure elder citizens are not being taken advantage of in um, this form of arrangement? Well, I I think it's important, although there are forms that you can buy from the news agency, for example, for powers of attorney, um, I generally recommend against them. It's not that lawyers make money out of powers of attorney because they are very um, labour-intensive documents to prepare, but it's really done as a service to the community. Um, And um, uh, my view is that it's important to have powers of attorney in place. Always appoint two people. 
um, you can appoint, as I say, three and say a majority can sign or one can sign, but if somebody else has got power to step in and say something or do something or to watch what's going on, that's really important. Um, we put some extra conditions in our powers of attorney as well that are dependent upon particular circumstances, but sometimes um, if we might suggest that the attorney has to provide copies of, uh, of financial documents to other family members, for example, because if it is a family member that's perpetrating the abuse, it's often too late before the other the other people know. And if they ask any questions, they're told it's none of your business or I've got to keep it confidential because I'm an attorney and I've got a duty of confidentiality to mum or dad. In fact, what they're doing is hiding the information away. So we might um, suggest those sorts of things as additional safeguards. Um, we uh, often include in documents that um, the uh, attorney or someone else um, can uh, approach the doctor, has authority to get a, a certificate from the doctor or a letter from the doctor about the person's capacity, um, because while they've got full decision-making capacity, of course, the attorney is supposed to act on their instructions, and they've lost um, full decision-making capacity, they need to act in their interests, which might be not necessarily on their instructions, but is best for them. So um, sometimes in documents, it's important to include those extra authorities for people so that um, somebody can step in when it's necessary. Putting your documents in a safe place. So don't leave your title at home, for example. Uh, um, you know, don't uh, don't give people an authority, an open-ended authority to sign on your bank accounts. Um, you can have a small account, and they can have authority to sign on it, for example, to do the shopping and things like that. But that doesn't mean they have to have authority over all of your money. You know, and if you've got some money, make sure the accountant, the accountants are very good at keeping an eye on these things as well. So there's various um, ways that people can be alerted to this sort of thing. Um, and uh, so it's important when people are setting up these documents, getting their legal affairs in order, um, that they address their particular circumstances and protect against those circumstances. Well, certainly with these different avenues where you're going to need to spend money or make decisions given that there is quite a broad uh, scope in in those type of decisions that are required having that mapped out can be quite helpful yes uh, it is and we touched on this question about a person having decision making capacity and again when the government amended the um, powers of attorney introduced the powers of attorney act and amended the guardianship and administration act um, they included a specific a definition of decision-making capacity and it requires the person to be able to understand what is being put to them, um, to weigh and assess the information uh, that they need to make a decision, retain that information and convey that information. So it's, it's quite a, a four-step process. Uh, there are some risks associated with that because um, as sometimes you get a, a, an elderly person can appear to have capacity, um, but when you press beyond it, um, they they are because of uh, some diminution in capacity, they might be particularly vulnerable to exploitation. They may not be able to, that critical part of being able to weigh and assess um, what is being asked of them and the decision that they're, being, they're making, that's not going to be so apparent to people. Um, 
so it, 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 that can be a real risk. And I've seen an increasing number of situations where a person has diminished capacity. And the question is, do they have sufficient capacity to make decisions? For example, um, they might be able to make simple decisions like buying milk and bread, but they mightn't be able to make much more financial, uh, much more complex decisions. Um, other types of decisions that they might need to make and where perpetrators can take advantage is if um, mum is living at home, for example, or dad, um, they would be best going to a supported accommodation facility for the supports they need for their particular condition. Um, but the uh, abuser says, well, of course, you want to stay at home. You don't want to go to an old people's home, do you? Um, and if you would ask the elderly person, they would say, oh, yes, of course, I want to stay in my own home. Um, and uh, one example I had of, was of a fellow who, um, fortunately, his children were acting in his interests. They thought he needed to go to care and he didn't want to go. So I went with him to see his neurologist and then the neurologist said to me, uh, asked him, well, you know, Mr X, um, do you want to stay at home? And he said, oh, yes, I love my home. I've been here with my wife until she died for some 40 years. I love the garden. I love walking around. I love you know, cooking for myself. I lack all the freedom of that and the interaction. And so I said to him, well, Mr. X, what would happen if you left the gas stove on again? And he said, gas stove? What gas stove? I said, well, you have a gas stove. He said, do I? Yes. He, he didn't even know he had a gas stove. So at a very simple level, yes, he wanted to stay at home and be in his garden, but he couldn't weigh and assess what was required to make that decision. So my next question was, well, you've got a very steep driveway. What if you fall down the driveway and break your leg again? He said, I won't do that. He said, but you've just been released from hospital having broken your leg. He said, well, I've been in a hospital, but that was for rehabilitation. So the neurologist said to me, I see what you mean. He clearly can't weigh and assess what's involved. The more complex um, uh, uh, um, um, capacity he required to be able to sustain himself in that environment. So you can start off thinking something simple. It's not so simple at all. Oh, well, it's, um, I guess it can be a bit of a challenge with uh, ascertaining what's right for the person uh, mm weighing up these various um, issues that might be taking place. Yes. So in terms of that example was quite uh, insightful. Do you, do you have any other um, examples where perhaps these uh, shows where elder abuse might have taken place and how you've been able to work to a resolution or intervention mm. on this form of behaviour? Yes, I've got lots and lots of examples. So some, some of the more recent ones that I can speak to are um, uh, uh, one person, uh, you know, taking uh, mum or dad to an aged care facility and not letting anyone visit them um, and saying, well, I've got the power of attorney and you're not to let anybody in to see them. Um, and in those circumstances, uh, uh, um, of course, uh, a person often has decision-making capacity about visitors. Uh, it's not so hard to work out whether you want a visitor or not, unless it's the perpetrator of the abuse. But if you've got long-time friends and family members, um, one would expect that they've been a big part of your life that you'd want to continue seeing them. And I have that very situation matter I'm involved in where everybody was excluded um, on the pretext that the um, parent needed time to settle in and become used to the facility. But 
that's not the attorney's role or their right to deprive them of social engagement. So um, in cases like that, we would often first contact the aged care facility um, and um, uh, secondly, contact the Office of the Public Advocate and thirdly, make an application to VCAT on behalf of um, the people being excluded. And sometimes there's a whole group of them um, that have been excluded from visiting and um, VCAT um, can intervene. So VCAT is the Victorian Civil and Administrative Tribunal. It has um, a division, the Human Rights Division, and within that division is the guardianship list. And the guardianship list is responsible for people um, that are 18 and over that have disabilities. And they have a jurisdictional threshold. The person has to have a disability and by reason of that disability, not be able to make their own decisions about particular matters. And then there must be a need for an intervention. Uh, and by that, I mean, um, people can have disabilities and you can have a power of attorney, it's working perfectly well. Or well, VCAT has, will say they've got no role to play. More often, VCAT is engaged where there is no power of attorney um, or it's not operating uh, or no valid power of attorney um, or it's not operating in the interests of the elderly person. Um, so quite often I will be involved in making an application to VCAT. Um, VCAT will um, consider the matter here from uh, uh, people that are interested and affected by it. Sometimes they'll refer the matter to the Office of Public Advocate to investigate and the, uh, the um, the uh, a representative, uh, an advocate guardian, will go out and um, investigate, talk to the people, talk to the aged care facility and see what's going on. They can access medical records. So sometimes you won't know where the person's, uh, the level of diminution of a person's capacity. So you need the intervention of someone like the Office of the Public Advocate to go and get the medical records and provide them to the tribunal. Um, so the Office of the Public Advocate plays a very important role. It's one of the, uh, in my experience, one of the best government departments I've dealt with. Um, it, it, it is made up overwhelmingly of very concerned um, uh, advocates um, and uh, with a long history of supporting and helping people in, in this environment. Um, and uh, we don't have enough of them, we need more of them, um, but um, uh, they're there and they can go out and play a very important role in investigating these sorts of claims of abuse. Oh, well, that's uh, great to know. And we certainly enjoyed our chat with Dr. John Chesterman of the Office of the Public Advocate in our podcast series. And in terms of avenues for support, we've touched on it in a variety of ways be it friends and family, the community, uh, experts such as the Office of the Public Advocate, Seniors Rights Victoria, uh, or visiting their lawyer. What can you say, I guess, as an overall um, sort of bringing the conversation together, uh, as far as what would you advise um, the, the public, uh, be it the victims or family members or friends, on how um, we can tackle uh, elder abuse and ensure that the, the victims aren't uh, suffering the forms of abuse that they are? Well, I, I think it's important to understand that uh, the elderly person is in a vulnerable position. Um, and so you can't go in guns blazing and then leave and say, well, I've solved that problem. It, it doesn't work that way. I think for the abused person, um, it's important for them to feel that they can safely raise their concerns with somebody they trust. 
um, it's important for them to realise it's not their fault, um, as sometimes that um, they do think it's their fault. They've caused, you know, if they didn't say anything, their, their son or daughter wouldn't have started shouting at them. You know, if they weren't so incapacitated, their son or daughter wouldn't have got so frustrated that they hit them or took money or did something like that. Um, it's also important for them to understand that the abuse won't stop until there is an intervention. Um, and um, I've sometimes found with people that just that dawning that this is going to go on, the abuse will not stop until there is an intervention of some type. So for the, uh, uh, for the abused person, um, that's the best way, I think, to help them, guide them, direct them to a support that they trust, that they feel comfortable with, that will keep their confidence and help them. Um, for, um, uh, for the perpetrator of the abuse, um, it's only occasionally, but sometimes you can intervene in the early stages, especially when people don't realise. Sometimes it's care or stress. Um, this is becoming an, a common uh, theme amongst complaints about abuse is that carers are with people, they might be suffering from dementia, they might be, the elderly person might be um, very aggressive, very difficult to manage. They can be verbally aggressive, uh, the, the elderly person because of their dementia can be very aggressive themselves and very challenging, demanding in what they require. And carers just get to a point where they just blow their stack. Um, so sometimes um, people can intervene to give them a break. So the, the, um, the elderly person can go to respite, they could go and stay with another family member. You can take the, um, the perpetrator of the abuse out of the environment. Um, sometimes that helps. Um, uh, so these are these are strategies that can be employed by the the abuser and the abused, and then the community. I think um, the most important thing is to call it out one way or the other. You know, do contact. Crime stoppers. They will act on uh, on your call. Do contact the police. They will now go and do a welfare check. You know, do contact other family members if you're worried. If you feel able to do that, or or somebody that you know is support service. You, you often you'll see people arriving to provide some sort of support service, and they can speak to them. You know, a lot of the support services now linked together. So Eastern Health, for example, has a very good support service. Uh, they link a whole lot of services together. So I think the important thing is to um, understand the vulnerability of the elderly person and take steps to protect them, which doesn't leave them with the abuser know and knowing that um, something is happening. So take steps to protect them. Talk about it. Go and speak to somebody. Ring me. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. Ring me off the public advocate. Ring VCAT. Uh, there are people who will help. There are, there are all at the Victoria Legal Aid is another place that people sometimes contact. Um, I've certainly had some calls from face agencies like that to see if I can be of assistance to somebody. Um, so, you know, call it out one way or the other. If you've got a suspicion, it's probably, you know, your gut instinct is usually right in these things. If you've got a suspicion somebody is being abused, call it out, do something, act. Well, it's uh, terrific that there are many avenues in order to uh, address the these these type of matters. We mentioned at the start that um, you're a spokesperson for the Law Institute of Victoria. What's the role of the Law Institute of Victoria, and uh, and how does it relate to um, elder law as well? 
The Law Institute um, does a lot of work actively in this area. Um, I've been involved as past chair of the Succession Law Committee, involved in making submissions to government. Uh, we often comment on legislation, we'll suggest legislative reform. We um, meet with representatives um, each of the court and tribunal services. VCAT has a guardianship user group. Um, we participate in that, communicate concerns to other uh, healthcare providers in an environment where we can hear what's happening at VCAT and the Office of the Public Advocate and from healthcare providers, and we can feed back information that we have you know, about how to make it easier for the person or um, uh, uh, um, to take some of the roadblocks out of the way. Um, so uh, the Law Institute advocates a lot in the area of human rights, um, works closely with police. Um, we have a lot of um, uh, services where we engage on different levels with people um, in the areas of reform and implementation. We also have um, capacity guidelines that the Law Institute of Victoria has released to assist practitioners to understand um, how to make a, a, a to be alert to um, a risk of abuse or a risk of uh, diminished capacity when they're dealing with their clients. Um, so areas like that, the Law Institute works very actively in. In terms of yeah, yourself, um, for our listeners, uh, how is the best way that they can uh, get in contact with you if they um, will choose to? Uh, well, uh, I'm personally fairly well known. It's not hard to find me, but uh, often I say to people that the best way is to contact the Law Institute of Victoria and ask for an accredited specialist in this area um, or just contact one of the policy lawyers at the Law Institute. Um, it may be me, it may be somebody else who's a member of the Law Institute that can assist them, um, but they should say that, that this is their particular area of concern. Um, so there are, it's a bit like um, medical practitioners, the um, GPs have a, a, um, a broad uh, base of knowledge, but not always a deep knowledge base in particular areas. So um, in the way that you think of going to the doctor, if you've got colds and broken arms and things like that, they identify and understand those things very quickly. More complex things, so for example, even capacity assessments, they'll refer you to a specialist a neuropsychologist, a neurologist, a psychogeriatrician, a variety of other specialists in the field. In the same way, the Law Institute has accredited specialists or people that are very experienced in this area. Otherwise, as certainly as a first start, they, the Office of Public Advocate um, is a very good place to start. Um, but if they want to contact me, my firm is Cathy Wilson Legal. Um, and they can certainly give me, uh, people can give me a call and where possible, I'll refer them to somebody who can be of assistance to them. They don't necessarily need my services. Um, sometimes they just need somebody to steer them in the right direction. But if they need assistance, we can help them as well. Oh, well, that's, that's fantastic. And, uh, and I'm sure our, our listeners will have found uh, your uh, expertise today uh, invaluable and, and, and they can choose to uh, contact your firm or, or the areas that you've pointed to if need be. Uh, we certainly have thoroughly enjoyed chatting today with you, Cathy. It's been uh, great to learn more about the world of elder law and really to get that legal uh, angle, I guess, from how elder abuse can be handled from a, a legal standpoint and from a preventative standpoint has been uh, very beneficial. Before we go, are there any final comments you'd like to make in relation to what we've discussed or anything else you'd like to touch on? 
Uh, I think the thing I'd say to people is trust the system now, it will help you is the first thing. The second thing I would say to members of the community is if you think it doesn't go on, it does. I'm amazed at how many people say, oh, but that doesn't really happen, does it? I can say, yes, it does. It happens. Please help the person. If you've got a concern, reach out to someone. Reach out to Crime Stoppers. Reach out to Victoria Police. Reach out to a health care or support worker or a lawyer. Reach out to somebody. Thanks once again for being on the Crime Stoppers podcast today, Kathy. It's been a pleasure. And thank you so much for putting a spotlight on this issue. It is, I think, an increasingly uh, complex problem. and It's an increasing problem in the community. And the more we can do to bring a spotlight on it and help people to find strategies um, to overcome the abuse, I think is really, really important. So thank you for the opportunity. Terrific to chat with Cathy. We hope you have found it both informative and insightful. You can visit the Law Institute of Victoria's website at liv.asn.au and Cathy Wilson Legal at kwlegal.com.au. This concludes our five-part series on elder abuse. We'd like to thank our guests from Seniors Rights Victoria, Victoria Police, the Office of the Public Advocate and Law Institute of Victoria for sharing their expertise on this very important issue. To learn more about Crime Stoppers Victoria, please visit our website, crimestoppersvic.com.au. You are also welcome to follow us on our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thank you for listening to the Crime Stoppers Victoria podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.